Theophany by Eric Pearl Chapter 2 Being as Theophany Dionysius frequently says that although God is not any being, he is the cause, aitia, or aition, of all things. Divine Names 1.1, 588b, 1.3, 589b, 1.7, 596c, Mystical Theology 1.2, 1000b, and 4, uh, 1040d, and 5, 1048b. God is not any being. He is the cause, aitia, or aition, of all things, and as such can be named by all the names of all beings. Quote, It is cause of all beings, but itself nothing, a transcending all things in a manner beyond being. But since it is cause of all beings, the beneficent providence of the thearchy is hymned from all the effects. End quote. Divine Names 1.5593 CD Taken at face value, this would seem to violate all that has been said about God's transcendence. To describe God positively as cause would be to regard him as a being and ascribe to him the attribute of causality, disregarding Plotinus's careful explanation that to call the one cause indicates only the dependence of beings and does not predicate anything of the one. But Dionysius is by no means so obtuse. When he calls God cause, he does not mean this in the modern sense in which one being is the cause of other beings, as God, as the first cause, is the supreme being. Indeed, the very expression, cause of all things, indicates, as Dionysius says, that all things are effects, or creatures, and hence that God is not one of all things. Dionysius's understanding of God as cause, justifying the ascription of all the names of all things to him, depends on a distinctively Neoplatonic sense of causation. And we must, therefore, once again return to Neoplatonic philosophy to grasp the meaning of this doctrine. Since, in Neoplatonism, to be is to be intelligible, and hence to be determinate, the determination of any thing, the totality of features by which it is what it is, by which it is itself, as distinct from anything else, is the cause of being to that thing. The causation in question, therefore, is not the horizontal causation of one thing by another within the same ontological order, as when we say, for example, that parents are the cause of their offspring, or an earthquake is the cause of a tidal wave. It is rather the vertical causation of a lower ontological level by a higher one, as when we say the intelligible form fire, that is, fieriness, is the cause of sensible fires 
in that it makes them to be what they are, to be fires, and so makes them to be. Plotinus expresses this kind of causation when he contrasts the effortless productive power of intelligible form to the merely ancillary action of bodies on each other. Quote, the making of the sensible cosmos by intellect is done without noise or fuss, since that which makes is all real being and form. Aeneid 5.8, chapter 7, lines 24 through 25. And again, quote, One might certainly call the powers of fire and the other bodies great, but it is by mere inexperience of true power that they are Im imagined burning and destroying and crushing. But these destroy because they are destroyed, and help to generate because they are generated themselves. But the power in the intelligible world has nothing but its being, and its being beautiful. End quote. Aeneid 5.8, chapter 9, lines 32 through 37. The same principle that formal determination is the cause of being to, to that which it determines is evident in Plotinus's account of how all making is in fact contemplation, which, we must remember, is identical with its intelligible object. Quote, making, for it, nature, that is, the lowest level of soul which makes the sensible cosmos, means being what it is, and its making power is coextensive with what it is. But it is contemplation and object of contemplation, for it is a rational principle, logos. So, by being contemplation and object of contemplation and rational principle, it makes insofar as it is these things, end quote. Aeneid 3.8, chapter 3, lines 18 through 21. As Plotinus says later in the same treatise, quote, all things are a byproduct of contemplation, end quote. In the sense that they depend for their existence on the formal determination, which, as an intelligible idea, is also an act of thinking. This is true not only of the production of the sensible cosmos by nature or soul, but also of the production of soul by intellect, and of intellect by the one. Soul, says Plotinus, is, quote, defined by its parent, and, so to speak, given a form. Aeneid 5.1, chapter 7, line 41 and 42. Throughout Plotinus's hierarchy of production, the higher level acts as a form of determination relative to the lower, which receives it, and is at all only by receiving it. Most fundamentally, as we have seen, the one is the cause, quote-unquote, of all things, as that by which each is intelligible, is itself is the one distinct being that it is, and so is. As the universal principle of determination, whereby all beings are beings, the one itself has no determination, and hence is not anything intelligible, any being. Quote, Intellect 
having come to be, is manifest as all things themselves. But the good is enthroned upon them, not that it may have a base, but that it may have, uh, but that it may base the form of the first forms, itself formless. And in this way, intellect is to soul a light upon it, as the good to intellect. And when intellect also defines and limits the soul, it makes it rational by giving it a trace of what it has. Therefore, intellect is a trace of that good. But since intellect is form and is in extension and multiplicity, that good is shapeless and formless, for thus it makes form. End quote. Aeneid 6.7, chapter 17, line 34 through 41. We have already seen that, according to Plotinus, to call the one cause means only that being, qua determinate, is dependent. At every level, indeed, Plotinian emanation, or procession, the production or causation of a lower level of reality by a higher, is nothing but the dependence of what is determined on its determination. The production of the lower level is not in any way an event or a process. Rather, it is simply a description of the dependence of the lower on the higher. As Plotinus says, quote, Those are not right who destroy the image universe, while the intelligible abides, and bring it into being as if its maker ever planned to make it. For they do not want to understand how this kind of making works, that as long as the higher reality gives its light, the rest of things can never fail. They are there as long as it is there. But it always was and will be. We must use these temporal words because we are compelled to want to signify our meaning. End quote. Aeneid 5.8, chapter 12, lines 21 through 27. The light, of course, means the intelligible determination, in virtue of which anything is what it is. Still more concisely, Plotinus says, quote, Of necessity, then, all things must exist, forever, in ordered dependence upon each other. Those other than the first have come into being in the sense that they are derived from other, higher principles. Things that are said to have come into being did not just come into being, but always were and always will be in process of becoming. End quote. Aeneid 2.9, chapter 3, line 11 through 14. As this makes clear, the lower level comes to be not in the sense of having an origin, but only in the sense that it is dependent upon its superior. The causation in question, therefore, is nothing other than platonic participation. That which is determined, the effect, participates in its determination, the cause, that is, has it as its nature or attribute, and thereby is what it is. 
Plato frequently refers to the forms as that by which their instances are such as they are, and therefore describes a form as the cause, itia, which makes its instances such. For instance, Phaedo 100b 1 through 7. Quote, it seems to me if anything else is beautiful besides the beautiful itself, it is beautiful through nothing else than that it participates in the beautiful. And all things I say likewise, nothing else makes it beautiful than the presence uh, or communication of that beautiful. But that all beautiful things are beautiful by the beautiful. End quote. Only by understanding Platonic participation, then, can we understand the relation uh, because cause and effect in Neoplatonism, and therefore the sense in which, for Dionysius, God is the cause of all things. A Platonic form is the intelligible nature present in many things, by which they are such things. As such, a nature it is at once immanent in and transcendent to the instances that participate in it. It is immanent in that it is present in them as their nature or character, by which they are such instances. It is transcendent in that, as one and the same nature in many different instances, it is other than and unconditioned by each and all of them. Where among the beautiful things in the world is beauty? Everywhere and nowhere. Everywhere in that wherever there is a beautiful thing, there is beauty, as the nature which it has by which it is beautiful. Nowhere in that as one universal intelligible nature, it is other than the many beautiful things, and is not confined to any one of them. The form's transcendence is thus a strict implication of its imminence. The instances depend on the form to be such as they are, while the form, as a unitary intelligible nature capable of appearing in many instances, is independent of them. The instances, so to speak, owe everything to the form, as that by which they are what they are while the form, as the nature which by appearing in them makes them what they are, owes nothing to the instances. Plato indeed interprets participation as the multiple appearing of the one form in many instances. Quote, Each form is itself one, but as they appear everywhere by communion with actions and bodies and each other, each appears many. End quote. Republic 476a 5 through 7. The individuated character of a sensible thing, for instance, the beauty of Helen, is a differentiated appearance of the one form, in this case, beauty itself. And the form itself is in the instance in that it appears here, and by so appearing makes the instance what it is, for instance, beautiful. All that we find in sensible things, then, are images, 
presentations or appearances of intelligible forms. As appearances, sensible things are not beings additional to the forms, and so do not constitute a, another world. An appearance of a being, for instance, to use a platonic analogy, a reflection in a mirror, is not another being. When a man stands before a mirror making a reflection, there is still only one man there. But to say that sensibles are appearances is not to say that they are mere illusions, or not real at all. An appearance of a real thing is not the real thing itself, nor is it another real thing, but neither is it nothing. When we see a reflection, we are not seeing nothing, or suffering a hallucination, nor are we seeing something other than what is being reflected. In seeing the appearance, then, we are seeing the real thing as it appears, and yet we are not seeing the real thing in itself, as Plato would say, itself by itself. An appearance is and is not that which appears. It is in just this sense that since the forms are that which is, Sensibles as appearances of the forms both are and are not, or are in between being and non-being. Republic 478, D, 5 through 11. The different levels of being in Plato are in fact different modes in which reality may be given to cognition. Each form or being may be apprehended by intellect as it is as one, as the single intelligible nature that it is. Or it may be apprehended by sense as it appears, as many, as the character of this or that instance, differentiated from its appearances in other instances. The difference between intelligible forms and sensible instances is the difference not between two kinds of reality, but between reality and appearance. Plotinus adopts this understanding of participation, the relation between the determined effect or product and its causal or productive determination, as the appearance of the cause in the effect. He often describes the form that is present in a sensible as an image of the form in intellect. For instance, Ennead 5.9, chapter 3, lines 36 through 37, and 5.9, chapter 5, line 18. This might seem to indicate a distinction between the imminent character and the transcendent form. But he is careful to explain that this does not mean that the transcendent form is not present in the sensible, and that this image is not other than the form but is only the differentiated presence, or appearance, of the transcendent form itself. This is indeed the theme of the whole of Ennead 6.4-5, through 5, on the presence of being, one and the same, everywhere as a whole. Here he explains that the image perceived in the sensible is in fact the immediate presence of the transcendent form. Quote, 
The things in matter are images, and the forms hold the rank of archetypes. But now we must speak more precisely, and not assume that the form is spatially separate, and then the idea is reflected in matter, as if in water, but that matter, from every side grasping, and again not grasping the idea, receives the form over the whole of itself, by its drawing near to it all that it can receive, and nothing between." End quote. Aeneid 6.5, chapter 8, line thir uh, 13 through 21. It is one and the same form, the archetype, that is wholly present in all its instances. But for Plotinus, as for Plato, it appears as many to sense perception, and these differentiated appearances of the form are what Plotinus calls images. Quote, it is not correct to divide that same up into the many, but rather to bring back the divided many to the one, and that one has not come to these many, but these, because they are scattered, have given us the appearance, doxan, that also has, uh, uh, that also that has been taken apart. End quote. And he six point four, chapter seven, lines four through eight. The form is present in the sensible in that it appears here in a differentiated mode. Quote, it is not then divided up into parts, but seems to be so divided to the recipient. End quote. Aeneid uh, 6.4, chapter 14, lines 13 through 14. And this apparent division or differentiation is due to sensation's limited mode of apprehension. Quote, For it is sense perception to which we are paying attention when we disbelieve what is now being said, which says that is here and there. But reason says that the here and there has not come about by its being extended, but the whole of what is extended has participated in it while it is not itself spaced out, end quote. Aeneid 6.4, chapter 13, lines 2 through 6. In other words, sensation apprehends a form as it appears, as the character of this or that particular instance, here and there. But what appears and is apprehended differently in different things is one and the same intelligible form, which is neither confined to one instance nor divided up among any, uh, many. Plotinus sums this up by saying of the form that it is all present, but it is not all seen in everything, because of the incapacity of what underlies it. But it is present, numerically identical, everywhere. End quote. Aeneid 6.5, chapter 11, lines 30 through 32. Thus, for Plotinus as for Plato, intelligible being is at once transcendent to and imminent in the sensible. Quote, there is nothing, therefore, surprising in its being in all things in this way, because it is also in none of them in such a way as to belong to them. End quote. 
and you get to 6.4, chapter 3, lines 13 through, uh, 17 through 19. The entire discussion makes it very clear that the image, the form seen in the sensible particular, is not something other than the transcendent archetypal form in intellect, but is sensation's lesser differentiated apprehension of that very form itself. The higher level is the cause of the lower, then, in the sense that the latter is the differentiated appearance or presentation of the former to a lesser mode of cognition. The higher makes the lower as a reality by appearing, makes the appearances of itself. This is, in turn, the sense in which all beings are caused by the one, just as all fires are fires by having or participating in the intelligible form, fire. So, since anything can be only by being one, all beings are beings by having or participating in the one. Quote, but that which comes after the origin, that is, intellect or being, coming after the one, is somehow under the pressure of the one. All things by its participation in the one. End quote. Aeneid 5.3, 15, uh, 25 through 26, and also Aeneid 5.5, chapter 4, lines 1 through 4. Here again, we can see just why the one is beyond being. Just as the form fire, as that which is common to all fires, whereby they are fires, is not itself one of the fires, so the one, as that which is common to all beings, whereby they are beings, is not itself one of the beings. And just as any form is at once transcendent to and imminent in its instances, so the one is at once transcendent to and imminent in all beings. Transcendent in that it is not identified with or confined to any one of them. Imminent in that it is present to all that by which they are beings. Excuse me, it is present to all as that by which they are beings. Quote, the one is there and not there. It is not there because it is not in the grasp of anything. But because it is free from everything, it is not prevented from being anywhere. For if, on the other hand, it was prevented, it would be limited by something else. And... God would go just so far, and would not be independent, but a slave to the beings which come after him. The things, therefore, which are in something, are there where they are. But everything which is not somewhere has nowhere where it is not. For if it is not here, it is clear that another place contains it, and it is here in something else, so that the not somewhere is false. If, therefore, the not-somewhere is true, and the somewhere is false, it will not be absent from anything. But if it is not absent from anything, and is not anywhere, it is everywhere independent. End quote. 
Aeneid 5.5, chapter 9, lines 13 through 24. If the one were merely other, or separate, it would be another being, and so would be limited in relation to others. Precisely as transcendent, infinite, beyond being, it must not be or it must be not separate but present to all things and precisely as present to all beings it is not any one of them and so is transcendent proclus's doctrine of causation as participation may seem to be different from that of plato and plotinus because he distinguishes between the participated terms that is, the individuated properties, each of which belongs to a particular instance, and the unparticipated term, the universal that is numerically one for all the instances, and hence does not belong to any of them. Quote, all that is unparticipated produces from itself the participated. For on the one hand, the unparticipated having the relative status of a monad, as being its own and not another's, and as transcending the participants, generates terms capable of being participated. For it will give something of itself, whereof the receiver becomes a participant, whilst the given subsists as a participated term. Every participated term, on the other hand, becoming a property of that by which it is participated, is secondary to that which is equally present to all, and has filled them all from itself. That which is in one is not in the others, while that which is present to all alike, that it may illuminate all, is not in any one, but is prior to them all." End quote. Elements of Theology, Proposition 23. Thus, for instance, there is a difference between the unitary universal form, fire, the unparticipated, and the fieriness of a particular fire, the participated, which is numerically distinct from that of other fires. Participation, conceived by Plato and Plotinus as a two-term relation between the participant and the participated, now becomes a three-term relation among the participant, the participated, and the unparticipated. Taken at face value, this would separate transcendence from immanence. For the transcendent cause, uh, the unparticipated, is not present in the instance as its property, and what is present in each instance as its property, the participated, is not the unitary transcendent cause. At the highest level, this distinction takes the form of Proclus's distinction between the one itself and the henads, or gods, the many different unities in which beings participate. See Elements of Theology, Proposition 116. Closer examination, however, reveals that Proclus's meaning is not fundamentally different from that of Plato and Plotinus. For the participated term is in fact nothing but the differentiated presence of the unparticipated cause in the effect. 
It is distinct only in the sense in which for Plotinus, the image in the sensible is distinct from the archetype. In this very proposition, Proclus says that the unparticipated term, quote, will give something of itself, end quote, in which the recipient participates, and this something of itself is none other than the participated term. Thus the unparticipated term is present to all and has filled them all from itself. Indeed, it is precisely in order that the cause may be present to all alike that Proclus distinguishes it from the participated terms, each of which belongs uniquely to one of the effects. The purpose of the distinction, then, is not to keep the unparticipated term aloof from the participants, but to guarantee its unconditioned presence to them all. Shortly afterward, Proclus says, quote, Thus the engenderer, the unparticipated cause, is established beyond alteration or diminution, multiplying itself in virtue of its generative potency, and furnishing from itself secondary substances. Elements of Theology, Proposition 27. These secondary substances, the participated terms, then, are the multiple differentiated presences of the universal cause in the participating effects. Proclus corrects the seeming separation between transcendence and imminence in a passage that closely parallels Plotinus's account of the simultaneous transcendence and imminence of the forms to sensibles and of the one to being. Quote, Every cause which is separate from its effects exists at once, everywhere and nowhere. We mean by cause that which fills all things naturally capable of participating in it, which is the source of all secondary existences, and by the fecund outpouring of its irradiations, is present to them all. But by its mode of being, which has no admixture of the spatial, and by its transcendent purity, it is nowhere, for if it is separate from its effects, it is enthroned above all alike, and resides in no being, inferior to itself. If it were merely everywhere, it would not exist separately prior to them all. Were it nowhere without being everywhere, it would not be omnipresent. In that sense, uh, in which causes are capable of imminence in their effects. Namely by unstinted self-bestowal. In order that as cause it may be present in all that can participate it, while as separate and independent principle it is prior to all the vessels with uh, which it fills, it must be at once everywhere and nowhere. End quote. Elements of Theology, Proposition. 98. The cause is separate in the sense that it is not conditioned by its effects, not in the sense that it is not present to or imminent in them. The unparticipated term, then, is simply the universal determination considered as one and the same, and hence transcendent to its instances. While the participated terms 
are the same determination considered as differently present in each instance. Thus we return to the notion of appearance, of the different modes in which the same content may be given to cognition. From all of this it follows that the causation we are considering is not the making of an additional thing, the production of one being by another being. The effects are not more things additional to the cause. Rather, since all that is found in the effects is the differentiated presence of the cause, the effects are contained in the cause. Whatever content we find in an appearance must be present in the reality which is appearing. As Plotinus says, quote, The last and lowest things, therefore, are in the last of those before them, and these are in those prior to them, and one thing is in another up to the first, which is the principle. But the principle, since it has nothing before it, has not anything else to be in. But since it has nothing else to be in, and the other things are in those which come before them, it encompasses all the other things. 5.5, Five chapter 9, lines 6-10. The one, then, contains in itself, or better, is the undifferentiated containment of all beings. Conversely, all that is found in the effects, and hence the effects themselves, are nothing but differentiated appearances of the cause. The cause, therefore, is the enfolding, or complicatio, of the effects, and the effects are the unfolding, or explicatio, of the cause its presentation or appearance in differentiated multiplicity. Thus Plotinus remarks, quote, Since in things which are generated it is not possible to go upwards, but only to go downwards and move further towards multiplicity, the principle of each group of things is simpler than they are themselves. There must, therefore, be a concentration into a real one outside all multiplicity and any simplicity whatsoever, if it is to be really simple. End quote. Five point three, chapter sixteen, line six through sixteen. As this concentration of the one is not any one thing, but all things without distinction, not all things as a multiplicity for that is not the one, but being or intellect, but all things at once, without the differentiation which constitutes them as themselves, as intelligible, and hence as all things, as being. Quote, but how is that one the principle of all things? Is it because, as principle, it keeps them in being, making each one of them exist? Yes, and because it brought them into existence. But how did it do so? By possessing them beforehand. But it has been said that in this way it will be a multiplicity. 
but it had them in such a way as not to be distinct. They are distinguished on the second level, in the rational form, logos. Aeneid 5.3, chapter 15, lines 27 through 33. As we have seen, distinction, and hence multiplicity, are necessary conditions for intelligibility, and therefore for being. Precisely as all things without distinction, the one is not anything, i.e., beyond being. Quote, the one, all things, and not even one, for it is the principle of all things, not all things, but all things transcendently, for in a way they do occur there, or rather they are not there yet, but will be. And yet 5.2, chapter 1, line 1 through 3. The phrase, not yet, but will be, clearly indicates the absence of differentiation by which all things are in all things, or by which all things are all things. To use a Platinian image, see Aeneid 5.1, chapter 11, lines 11 through 13, we may think of all things as the many different points on, a circum on the circumference of a circle. If we imagine all the points moving toward the center, each along its own radius, the circle will become progressively smaller. When all the points meet at the center, the circle will blink out altogether. That is the one, not anything, but the undifferentiated containment of all things. Conversely, then, all things are nothing but the unfolding of the one, its presentation in differentiated multiplicity. What constitutes beings as not the one, but as all things, as being, is their differentiation from one another. They are beings in that they are distinct from one another, and therefore determinate and intelligible. What distinguishes each being from the others is also what distinguishes each being from the one. Each being is not the one, precisely in that it is differentiated from all other beings, is determinate, is intelligible, or, in short, in that it is a being. All things are other than the one, but the one is not other than all things. For the one, Plotinus says, has no otherness. Aeneid 6.9, chapter 8, line 34. All the otherness is on the side of being. For the otherness of being, from the one, consists not in the one's being defined over against being, but in the otherness within being of one being from another. As differentiated, finite presentations, all beings are appearances of the one. In that they are intelligible, they are the one as it is given to and apprehended by intellect, which is to say, not as the one, the undifferentiated containment of all things, but as differentiated, that is, as being. Since to be is to be intelligible, to be is to be given to thought, to be manifest, 
to be appearance. The differentiation of beings from one another, in virtue of which they are intelligible and are beings, constitutes them, therefore, as appearances of the one. Thus Plotinus explains that being is established as the multiplicity of forms, and hence as being, in, by, and as, intellect's differentiated apprehension of the one. Quote, Therefore, this multiple intellect, when it wishes to think that which is beyond, thinks that itself which is one, but in wishing to attain to it in its simplicity, comes out continually apprehending something else made many in itself. End quote. In Eta 5.3, chapter 11, lines 1 through 4. The content of intellect, which is the whole of being, is the one as it is given, as it appears to and in intellect, which is necessarily as many. Thus Plotinus says that, quote, being is a trace of the one, end quote. Eneida 5.5, chapter 5, line 14. Or equivalently, that intellect is an expression, logos, or image of the one. Eneida 5.1, chapter 6, line 45. 5.1, chapter 7, line 1. Just as a platonic form is one and makes its instances to be such instances by appearing many, so that the contents of the instances are differentiated appearances of the form, so the one makes all things by appearing multiply, so that the entire content of being is the differentiated appearance of the one in intellect. When Neoplatonic vertical causation, or procession, is understood as the dependence of the determined on its determination, and hence as the differentiated appearance of the unitary determination, it becomes clear that the production of the effect is not an activity on the part of the cause, distinct from the cause itself. It produces the effect, which we must remember means only that the effect depends on it for its identity, and hence its existence, simply in that it is determination. The determination as such is the productive activity for that which it determines. The cause does not first exist as itself, and then also appear or unfold itself, and in that sense produce its effects. Rather, the cause is nothing but that which is appearing, nothing but the unity, the enfolding of the effects. As Plotinus says of nature, quote, Making for it means being what it is, and its making power is coextensive with what it is. End quote. Anita 3.8, chapter 3, line, lines 18 through 20. Similarly, he says of the forms, quote, But this, the intelligible, all, is universal power. Anita 5.8, chapter 9, lines 20, uh, line 25. That is, the productive power by which the sensible cosmos has any existence at all. Each level is best understood not as the producer, but 
as the production of its consequent, the constitutive power by which the latter is. At the highest level, this means that the one is not something, some being which both is or is itself, and also appears and in that sense causes all things, but is rather the causing, the production or the making of all things. Thus, just after describing the one as, quote, all beings and not even one, that is, all things without distinction, Plotinus says, quote, This, we may say, is the first act of generation. The one, perfect because it seeks nothing, has nothing, and needs nothing, overflows, as it were, and its superabundance makes an other, end quote. Enneida 5.2, chapter 1, lines 8 through 10. This can only mean not that the one is a being which overflows, which would contradict Plotinus's entire metaphysics, but that the one is overflow itself, the differentiating or appearing by which all beings are. Plotinus frequently expresses this by referring to the one as not anything, but the power of all things, end quote. That is, nothing but the production of beings, the enabling condition by which they are beings. One of his best images for this point is the comparison of the one not to an object, which gives off light, but to the ambient light itself, whereby things are visible. Quote, For even the light of the sun, which it has in itself, would perhaps escape our sense of sight if a more solid mass did not lie under it. But if someone said that the sun was all light, one might take this as contributing to the explanation of what we are trying to say. For the sun will then be light which is in no form belonging to other visible things. This, then, is what the seeing of intellect is like. This also sees by another light the things illuminated by that first nature, and sees the light in them. When it turns its attention to the nature of the things illuminated, it sees the light less, but if it abandons the things, it sees and looks at the medium by which it sees them. It looks at light and the source of light. But intellect must not see this light as external." End quote. Enneida 5.5, chapter 7, lines 13 through 23. Just as light is not any of the illuminated things, but is present to them all as the condition by which they are visible, so the one is not any of the intelligible things or beings, but is present to them all, as the condition by which they are intelligible, and hence are beings. And just as light is involved in every act of seeing, as the condition of visibility, but not itself an object of sight, as the illuminated things are, so the one is involved in every thought as the condition of intelligibility, but is not itself the object of any thought. This image also captures the doctrine of being as the appearance of the one, 
light cannot be seen by itself as pure light, but only as it is defined or rendered concrete in a distinct illuminated thing, so that all that is seen in any visible thing is a differentiated, determinate appearance of light itself. Proclus, likewise, insists that there can be no distinction between a cause and its causing. Quote, Every productive cause produces the next and all subsequent principles while itself remaining steadfast. For if it imitates the one, and if the one brings its consequence into existence without movement, then every productive cause has a like law of production. Now, the one does not create without movement. For if it create through movement, either the movement is within it, and being moved it will change from being uh, being one, and so lose its unity. Or if the movement be subsequent to it, this movement will itself be derived from the one, and either we shall have infinite regress, or the one will produce without movement. End quote. Element of Theology, Proposition 26. The one, therefore, is production itself, since otherwise its producing would be a movement, and so is any cause in relation to its consequent. Quote, quote, but every producer remains as it is, and is consequent, and its consequent proceeds from it without change in its steadfastness. Full and complete, then, it brings to existence the secondary principles without movement and without loss, by itself being what it is. End quote. Elements of Theology, Proposition 27. If the cause produces by being what it is, then its producing is not other than itself, and hence the cause is nothing but the producing of its effect. Proclus expresses this most clearly when he remarks that the one's production of all things is not, properly speaking, an activity at all. Quote, if then these entities, that is, soul and intellect, produce by their existence alone, far more so does that one which is above them produce all things by the very fact of being one, not requiring any other activity to accompany its being one. So then it created all things without employing activity. But if in using these very words, created and produced, we use terms proper to activity. We apply these terms to the one from the realm of beings, signifying through terms denoting activity and activityless manifestation of all things from it. End quote. Here, the doctrine of production as manifestation, rather than the making of all uh, of additional things, becomes explicit. For Proclus no less than for Plotinus, all reality, no matter how many levels of and triadic subdivisions may be found within it, is nothing but the unfolding, the differentiated presentation of the one. We are now in a position to see what Dionysius means when he describes God as not any thing but the cause of all things, and hence subject to no name, and to all names. The operative principle is the Neoplatonic law that, quote, 
the things that belong to the effects pre-exist in the causes. Divine Names 2.8, 645D. Since determination is the cause of being to that which it determines, God is the cause of all things in that he is present to all things as the constitutive determinations by which each is itself and so is. God is, quote, the illumination of the illumined and principle of perfection of the perfected and principle of deification of the deified and simplicity of the simplified and unity of the unified and to speak simply, the life of living things, and the being of beings. End quote. Divine Names 1.3, 589c. He is present to all beings as being, the universal character common to all beings, such that they are beings. God, quote, neither was, nor will be, nor came to be, nor comes to be, nor will come to be, rather, he is not, but he is being to beings, end quote. Divine Names 5.4, 817d. Likewise, he is present to all living things as life, the universal determination by which they are living things as distinct from non-living things. But the determining constitutive divine presence is not limited to such exalted attributes as being and life, but includes all the features of each thing, which constitute it as that distinct thing, as itself, and hence as a being. Quote, In the cause of all things, the paradigms of all beings pre-exist. Paradigms are the being-making determinations, pre-existing unitarily in God of beings, which theology calls predeterminations and good wills, determinative and creative of beings, according to which the beyond being both predetermined and produced all beings. End quote. Divine Names 5.8, 824c. Here, these paradigms, or logoi, contained without distinction in God, are explicitly identified as the defining or determining principles which make beings to be. God is thus present in each being as its determining or defining logos, by which it is itself, and so is. All the features of all things, therefore, are God in them, making them to be by making them what they are, so that God is not only being in beings and life in living things, but all things in all things. End quote. Divine Names 1.7596c this constitutive presence of God in all things is what Dionysius variously calls the powers, participations, processions, providences, manifestations, or distributions of God. 
All these expressions refer to God's causal presence in things as their intelligible determinations. Quote, if we have named the hiddenness beyond being God, or life, or being, or light, or word, we are thinking nothing other than the powers brought forth from it to us, which are deifying, or being-making, or life-producing, or wisdom-giving, Divine Names 2.7, 645a. As Dionysius here indicates, this is the justification for the naming of God. Since whatever feature we find in any being is God in it, God is truly named with all names of all things. Hence, he is not only nameless, but many-named. Divine Names 1.6, 596a bearing all the names of all things. Dionysius's God, then, like Plato's forms in relation to their instances, or Plotinus's one in relation to all things, is at once transcendent and imminent. He is transcendent, as we have seen, in that he is not a being at all, not included within reality as any member of it and he is imminent in that he is immediately present in all things, as all their constitutive determinations. As Dionysius says, quote, The being of all things is the divinity beyond being. This seemingly paradoxical formulation is perfectly straightforward in the light of Neoplatonic metaphysics. God is the being that all beings have, by which they are beings, and as such is beyond being in that he is not himself one of them, one of the things that have being. Dionysius expresses this simultaneous transcendence and imminence in his account of God as light, reminiscent of Plotinus's image of the One as ambient light rather than an illuminated being. Quote, the goodness of the Godhead, which is beyond all things, extends from the highest and most venerable substances to the last, and is still above all, the higher not outstripping its excellence, nor the lower going beyond its containment, but it both enlightens all that are able, and crafts, and enlivens, and holds together, and perfects, and is the measure of beings." End quote. Divine Names 4.4697c. 4, As light, God does not stand at the peak of the hierarchy of beings, but transcends and permeates the whole, transcending it in that he is not any member of it, permeating it in that he is present throughout as the illumination or determination by which all things are. Dionysius articulates this transcendence and imminence, adapting Proclean terminology, by saying that the divine processions are unpartic uh, unparticipatedly participated. Divine Names 2.5644a this may seem to make his doctrine different from that of Proclus, in that for Dionysius, 
it is the unparticipated God himself in whom all things participate, whereas Proclus distinguishes the imminent participated terms from the transcendent unparticipated terms. Term. But this difference is only apparent, for as we have seen, Proclus's participated terms are nothing but the differentiated presence of the unitary unparticipated term in the participants. Dionysius's processions are participated in that they are un, uh, differentiated they are the differentiated presence of God in all things but they are participated unparticipatedly in that since the same God is differently present in different things he is not confined to or in that sense possessed by any of them Despite differences of expression, the structure of participation, implying at once transcendence and imminence, remains the same in Plato, Plotinus, Proclus, and Dionysius. One and the same term is present in many different things, and as what is the same in all of them, imminent, it is other than and unconditioned by all of them, transcendent. But if all the de uh, determinations of all things are the presence of God in them, then God is not merely in all things, as if he were in something other than himself. Rather, God is the whole content of reality, all things in all things. God is all things as cause of all things, and holding together and prepossessing in himself all principles all limits of all beings. Divine Names 5.8, 824a through b. The various features, characters, or natures, the determinations found in a thing, constitute the entire intelligible content of that thing, all that there is in it for the mind to encounter. And since to be is to be intelligible, they constitute the whole of the thing itself. A being can be nothing but uh, can be nothing but the totality of its intelligible determinations, down to the last details by which it is this particular thing and no other. The divine processions are in all things, then, not as contained in something other than themselves but as constituting their entire content. God is the cause of all things, and so subject to all names, therefore, in that the entire intelligible content of all things, and hence the whole of reality, is nothing but the differentiated presence of God. Conversely, therefore, God is not some being other than all things. The very formula is an absurdity, but is rather the entire content of reality, that is, all things without differentiation, without the distinctions from one another by which they are all things. Here again we find the Neoplatonic doctrine of complicatio and explicatio, enfolding and unfolding. The cause here, God, is the undifferentiated containment of the effects, 
and the effects, here all things, are the presentation of the cause in differentiated multiplicity. Thus Dionysius says that the ray beyond being can neither be thought, nor spoken, nor contemplated in any way at all, because it is transcendent to all things, and beyond unknowing, and pre-contained in itself, at once, in a manner beyond being, all the limits of all substantial knowledges and powers. End quote. Divine Names 1.4592d through 593a. Quote, all the limits of all substantial knowledges and powers means all the intelligible contents of reality, the termini or objects of knowledge, and Dionysius here expressly conjoins their containment in God at once that is, without distinction, with their containment in him, quote, in a manner beyond being, and also, of course, beyond thought, and beyond unknowing. Still more plainly, he says that, quote, the cause of all things pre-contained in itself all beings simply and indeterminately, Divine Names 1.7, 596c through 597a, Consequently, Dionysius says not merely that God is in all things, but that he is all beings and none of beings, end quote. Or better, all things in all things and nothing in any, end quote. Divine Names 7.3872a. Dionysius here follows the thought of Plotinus, who, as we have seen, says not only that the one is present in all things, but that it is all things and not even one. Aeneid 5.2, chapter 1, line 1. Dionysius as God is all things in all things, in that whatever intelligible content is found in anything, and so the thing itself, is God in it, in the distinct way that is constitutive of that being. And he is nothing in any, in that he is not any one thing, distinguished from others within the whole of reality, and constituted by that distinction. Like the one of Plotinus, he is beyond being, just in that he is all things without distinction. If God is the complicatio of all things, all things without distinction, then, for Dionysius as for Plotinus, the differentiation of beings from one another is what makes being as a whole, the totality of the things that are, distinct from God. It is this differentiation that constitutes all things as all things, as being, as that which is, rather than God. But if being is being, or is in virtue of differentiation, then God himself is this very differentiation. Thus Dionysius says that God is named the different, since God becomes providentially present to all things and all things in all things for the preservation of all, Divine Names uh, 9.5, 912d. He goes on to say, quote, Let us consider the divine difference as his unitary multiplication and the uniform processions of his multiple generation to all things, end quote. Divine Names 9.5, 913b. 
This account of God as the productive differentiation by which beings are distinct, are themselves, and so are beings, recalls Plotinus's description of the One's production, which is not distinct from the One itself, as overflow, and his statement that the One is not merely simple, but beyond any simplicity whatsoever. Enneida 5.3, chapter 16, line 15. Still more clearly, it echoes Proclus's account of production as the causes multiplying itself, where there is no distinction between the cause and its productive self-multiplication, so that the cause is the very differentiation whereby it is differently present in, and so constitutes its effects. For all three philosophers, the one or God, is not a simple monad, devoid of difference and multiplicity, but possessing simplicity and unity. As the very differentiation whereby beings are beings, he is neither simple nor differentiated, but beyond both, and constitutes at once the unity of being and the differences within it. Quote, From this, God as the good, are all the substantial existences of beings. The unions, the distinctions, the identities, the differences, the likenesses, the unlikenesses, the communions of opposite things, the unmingling of united things. End quote. Divine Names 4.7704b The center of the circle, the undifferentiated containment of all things, is not first a simple monad, which then, in addition to being itself, also produces or undergoes differentiation. Rather, the containment is itself the unfolding, the overflow, multiplication, or differentiation, by which beings are distinct, and so are beings. For Dionysius, then, as for Plotinus and Proclus, the whole of reality, all that is, is theophany, the manifestation or appearance of God. For the entire content of any being is God present in it in a distinct, finite way, and in virtue of this distinction and finitude, knowable in that being as its intelligible content. It is just as distinct or finite that God is present in the being, or that the being is a presentation of God. For to be present means to be given or available to thought, that is, to be intelligible. And as intelligible, as given to thought, God is apparent or manifest in and as the being. To be present, to be manifest, to be finite, to be distinct, to be intelligible, are ultimately all the same, and all are elaborations of the only possible meaning of to be. The understanding of being as theophany is thus a strict consequence developed in the Neoplatonic tradition, of the original principle that to be is to be intelligible. To say that reality is the appearance of God, however, 
may be misleading if it is taken to mean that God is, so to speak, there, behind or inside all the appearances, an object prior to and apart from them. If God is not any being, then what is reality the appearance of? Such a question, again, attempts to reduce God to a what? A being, an object of thought, violating all that has been said about divine transcendence and about all being as appearance. When we speak of reality as the appearance of God, we must remember that since all reality is theophany, God as that which appears is not another being, another member of reality. The doctrine of being as theophany means not that God is and is himself, and also appears, but rather that God is nothing but what is differently present, or appears in and as all things. To pass from appearance to what is appearing, from being to God, is not to pass from one thing to another thing. Rather, since God is not another thing, but the unfolding of all things, to go from beings to God is to gather the whole diverse content of reality together, and in so doing, since being necessarily involves multiplicity and distinction, to pass beyond being. It may be felt that such doctrines make Dionysius into a mere monist, or pantheist. God, he insists, is not something other than the world, but is all things in all things. Again, if being is nothing but theophany, does this not imply that the world is not really real at all, but only appearance? Such objections, however, represent a failure to understand the Neoplatonic metaphysics of manifestation and intelligibility. Dionysius's metaphysics is not a form of pantheism, if by this we mean the doctrine that all things are God. On the contrary, every being, precisely in that it is a being, that is, something distinct, definite, uh, finite, and intelligible, Ipso facto is not God. Indeed, since to be is to be intelligible and therefore to be finite, to be means to not be God. This again is precisely why God is beyond being. Every being, then, absolutely is not God. Nor are all things taken as a totality God. For all things is plural a multiplicity of distinct, intelligible beings. The God of Dionysius is all beings and none of beings, all things in all things and nothing in any. And in these formulas, the all can never be separated from the, from the none. As all things without distinction, God is neither any one thing nor all things in their plurality. All things qua all things, the whole of reality, are absolutely other than God. But if Dionysius is not a monist or pantheist, neither is he a dualist, regarding God as another being over against the world. 
all things are not God. But God is not therefore something else besides all things. Such a notion, as the very words indicate, is manifest nonsense. If God were another being, besides his products, he would be included as a member of a more inclusive totality, subordinated to a more embracing universal term, and distinct from other members and therefore finite. If God were merely other than the world, he would be another thing, and so not truly transcendent, but contained in the world. All things are other than God, but God is not other than all things. Since all things are not God, Dionysius is not a monist. But since God is not something else besides all things, neither is he a dualist. Dionysius, like his fellow Neoplatonists, is able to negotiate a way between monism and dualism by means of the platonic concept of appearance taken up into the doctrine of being as theophany. The relation between an appearance and that of which it is an appearance is not a relation between two beings. The appearance is not another being, additional to that which is appearing. But in that the appearance, qua appearance, is not that which is appearing itself, neither is this a monistic reduction of the appearance to what is appearing. As Plato says, with reference to the status of sensibles as appearances of the forms, they are not being itself, the forms, but neither are they non-being, or nothing. The appearances both are and are not the reality. They are in between being and non-being. So, for Dionysius, beings are not additional things other than God, in such a way that God and the world would constitute two things. But neither are they nothing, or illusion, as in a monist philosophy. Wherever we look, we are not seeing God, in that every being, every object of thought, is not God. And wherever we look, we are seeing God, as he appears, for every being, every object of thought, is nothing but a presentation or appearance of God. To say that the world is the manifestation or appearance of God, then, is not to say that it is not real. Rather, Dionysius's Neoplatonic point is that reality itself is appearance. To be real means to be intelligible, to be given to thought, and thus to be appearance. To go beyond appearance in this sense of what is given to thought is to go beyond being. As Dionysius's Neoplatonic metaphysics is neither theism nor atheism, so also it is neither monism nor dualism, but can only be called, for want of a better term, theophanism. The relation between appearance and that which appears is irreducible to either unity or duality, and cannot be expressed in any terms other than those of appearance, manifestation, image, expression. 
Only through this Platonic concept is, the, is it possible to understand Dionysius's metaphysics or to make sense of the relation between the world and God without reducing the world to God, monism, or God to a being, dualism.